Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. My name is Matt Russell. Um, I'm the pastor of Equipping, and I have the privilege of speaking with you this morning. <clears throat> As I was preparing for our time together, I was thinking about how I grew up Episcopalian, and one of the things that I realized uh, growing up is that I would come into church, and I don't know, how many of you grew up liturgical, like in a liturgical uh, denomination? You, you go in, and you go into this um, kind of rote repetition of what I've been doing ever since I was a little boy. And so I wouldn't look at the book. I knew all the prayers. I knew all the things I was supposed to say. If I knew what the priest was saying and I would say them, um, he was supposed to be saying, but I would say them under my breath, kind of rebellious. And I, would, I just knew all these things. And you get into this rote or this routine of you know, uh, worship. I know I did. And you miss the connection between what we're doing and what it means. So often we can turn things that are meant to be a means to an end into the end itself. And I don't know if you realize this, as an independent non-denominational non -denominational church, we also have a liturgy. Um, we have a way of doing things, and we do them the same way pretty much every week. And we, after 19 years, are in just as much danger. I've been here 19 years, what I meant by that. I am in just as much danger in becoming routine in my worship and not connecting it in my mind to the end with which it's intended uh, to uh, culminate. We come together every Sunday, or when we come together for a family group, we come together for a class. We are coming together, you heard Dallas say it, to remember, to retell, and to respond to the gospel. Every time we're together, we are remembering, retelling, and responding to the gospel. Our worship time together is meant to be a reminder of the gospel that has saved us and to come back to the bigger story that we find ourselves in. And if we're not careful, we will make our lives about the smaller story of our weekly, daily, weekly life, and we'll forget that actually we are players in a much larger story, the gospel story, the story of God's glory. So this morning, what we want to talk about, what I want to talk about with you is how do we turn our eyes in the moments, if you were paying attention to all the songs we were singing, in the moments of those valleys, those storms, the difficulties of life, how do we turn our eyes to the bigger story of God's glory and not just stop with our story of the valley or the pain that we're in? One of the clearest places where we can see that desired transformation into Christ-likeness is when we are going through trials and difficulty. And I don't know about you, but I want to be increasingly living a consistent, faithful, uh, consistently faithful as a follower of Jesus. That's why you're here. You come because you want to be challenged and grown and to find consistency in how you walk your, your walk with Jesus. So, um, do you want to live out your faith in Jesus more consistently? If so, and I assume you do, that's why you're here, we should regularly stop and remember that what we do together corporately is a means to an end. What we do together corporately is meant to transform us individually, to transform our families and the way we function in our families, and to transform our community. What we do together isn't about us. It's not about our church. It's not about us. It's actually about the glory of God and making him known everywhere, through our lives, in the lives of our family members, 
and in the lives of the community in which we live. Let's stop right now and just ask God to do the work that only he can do. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for our time together as a body. And we want to say to you that we come together to see our lives within the larger story of your gospel. Lord, we want to live as faithful followers of Christ. So we pray that you'd put your finger on those things that aren't reflective of Christ so that we could be more yours every day. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you want to live your faith more consistently than you and I, we have to seek to understand our story, what happens in our life, within the larger context of the gospel, within the larger context of God's story. Maybe um, would be easiest is for me to tell a story of my own about my life and Christie's life um, and how we were challenged to see our story in the larger context of God's story. Christy and I have been married for 24 years. Um, we have three incredible children. Um, two of them are by the miracle of adoption. But our, our journey to that place in our life was really a dark valley, actually. And we struggled for years with infertility. And when we, about four years into our, our marriage, we decided we wanted to begin a family. We had it all planned out. I would finish grad school, and then after grad school, we'd begin the process of having a family. And we thought, wrongly apparently, that when you wanted to start a family, you just stopped trying to prevent it. Well, that's not really how it worked out for us. And we began this journey of infertility um, and in Virginia, we went to see a doctor, and I think the doctor's words were something like this, you will likely never start a family naturally. It's not going to happen. And those words settled in in a way that were like stones dropping into our hearts, if you know what I mean, the heaviness that was there and the difficulty of making peace with this reality when we had dreamed all along of getting married, finishing grad school, and starting a family of our own, of being uh, a one-income family and having a stay-at-home mom who, who raised children. And it seemed as if those dreams were kind of crashing in and, and, and folding in on us. Today, I want to look at three specific effects of the fall that we should expect. And I want to look at three gifts that God gives us to overcome those effects of the fall. That we're not, I want us to remember that there is a reality of brokenness in our life that nobody has to tell you about, you know. And there's also a reality of being a child of God and gifts that he gives us to engage that brokenness so that we can overcome the effects of the fall, so that we are experiencing redemption in the midst of the brokenness. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God is declaring the, the effects of that sin of that rebellion. And he says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. What this means is Adam is going to experience a large measure of fruitlessness. He will be able to scratch a living out of the ground by toil and difficulty and effort. But what it will also bring forth is a lot of thorns and thistles, things that get in the way of fruitfulness. 
Things that actually mitigate against fruitfulness and lead us into the reality of fruitlessness, thorns and thistles. Those words, you will likely never start a family naturally settled into our hearts. And we began to realize that we were facing in a very literal way, the reality in our life of fruitlessness, a desire to see something happen in our lives that wasn't, it didn't seem, wasn't meant to be. Adam and Eve thought that they could find life apart from God. That was Eve. She saw the fruit and said to herself that it was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food and it was good to make one wise, to make one like God. Adam and Eve believed that they could find meaning apart from God. Ecclesiastes 1.1 talks about this reality when he says, vanities of vanities. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's declaring that everything is meaningless. In all of creation, nothing in creation is going to give us the meaning that we long for. Nothing in creation, anything apart from God will never give me the meaning that I desire and long for. The preacher in Ecclesiastes goes on to basically tear down everything humanity looks for to provide meaning, wisdom and knowledge, possessions, pleasure. He says the end of all of those things is meaninglessness. We are plagued by a constant desire to find meaning and we seek to find it so often in earthly things which can't provide it. In our infertility, we experienced a hefty measure of meaninglessness. We had a vision for our life, a vision for what our family would look like and we had already begun to make plans. This is where life would be. This is what life would be like. And as those things began to crumble in front of us, we began to struggle with, what does my life mean now? What am I going to do if I can't be a stay-at-home mom? What am I going to do with this desire to have children and to be a dad, to present the gospel in a family to children. Where's our meaning gonna come from? And then lastly, another effect of the fall is selfishness. When after the flood, the people uh, began to repopulate the earth and they were in the Valley of Shinar, the Shinar Valley, and God had told them to go and to, to populate the whole earth, but they didn't want to. The short of it is they were afraid it was safer to stay together than to go out into the unknown. And so they decided, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. You see, their desire to bring about fruitfulness and meaning from where they were in the, by their own standards, their own control, led these people to selfishness. This is where the Tower of Babel and the splitting of, of people sending out into the world happened through different language because there was a desire to find meaning together in themselves and in what they could build to make a name for themselves rather than to make a name for God. As we experienced, long, as we experienced this, we had long periods of selfishness I hate to admit this, but so often when somebody in our peer group would announce that they were going to be having a baby, 
We should have been joyful, but it just felt like pain. It just felt like another reminder, more pain. And as people would invite us to showers, we wanted to go and to celebrate with them, but we couldn't or, or wouldn't because we were so focused at that moment in what we weren't getting that we desperately wanted. Are you with me? Selfishness had entered into our life because of our frustration and our pain over fruitlessness and meaninglessness. But see, (laughs) we're not left alone in a broken world. As believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, we are called into a greater story than the story that we're writing, the story that we try to write for ourselves. We are called into a bigger story, the story of God's glory. He's doing something beyond us. And he gives us gifts as followers, as his children. He gives us gifts to overcome the brokenness of the fall, to overcome fruitlessness, to overcome meaninglessness, and to overcome selfishness. Paul is writing, in in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their understanding of gifts. And he's basically telling them, your understanding of gifts is off. You are so selfishly minded and so proud in your gifts, you're missing the point. And he goes on to say, what gifts are for? For the edification of the body. And then he says, but I would that you would desire the higher gifts. This is the end of chapter 12, that you would desire the higher gifts. And then he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. And then he teaches them about love and how without love, everything that we would be experiencing as giftedness is meaningless. That love is what gives everything meaning. And then he comes back and he says, prophecy, speaking in tongues, words of knowledge, they all pass away when the perfect comes. Because when the perfect comes, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. We will not need these gifts for edification, easy for me to say, edification of the body. We won't need them because we will be edified in him. We will be glorified. We will look like him. But then Paul goes on to say, desiring these higher gifts, but now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What will endure of all the gifts, this is in the context of the gifts given to the people of God, faith, hope, and love. He has given us these three gifts to overcome the brokenness in the world. And I believe faith overcomes fruitlessness. I believe hope overcomes meaninglessness. And I believe love overcomes selfishness. The gift of faith. The word faith in the Bible can be either a verb or a noun. It must be a noun first in your life before it can be a verb. It is something that is, it's something, person, place, or thing, that is given to you by God. Faith is granted to you in his grace. It's given to you as a gift. And when we have received that gift, then that is where the verb faith comes into play, that we are to function in faith. In the scriptures, in the English translations, the word faith that's a verb, is translated believe, belief, or trust. So there's a function of faith that we are meant to grow in and walk in. 
At the end of Mark 4, when the disciples are with Jesus, they are on the, in the boat, and there's a storm that whips up on the water. And I want you to pay attention to what happens to them now. This storm whips up on the water, and they are fearful for their lives. And what's the first thing that we read in the scripture that they do in their fear? They begin to write their own story. They begin to write their own story rather than align themselves with the story that's being told to them. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Listen, when the storms of life are coming against us, I know my propensity is to write my own story, to begin trying to figure out what is going on and writing a new story. And they begin this process of doubting Jesus's concern and care for them. And after he calmed the storm, he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What is, it, what is Jesus expecting here of them? To just pretend that it's not dangerous? I mean, these were not wimpy fishermen. This isn't just some little, you know, waves on the water. They believed they were going to die. My guess is they had known people or seen them go out on the Sea of Galilee and not come back because of storms that whipped up on the water. They believed at that moment that they were going to perish, that they were going to die. The fear that's there, we're kind of a one-off. As we read it, we say, yeah, we know the end of the story. Jesus calms everything. But put yourself where they were. What did Jesus want from them? I think he wanted them to trust his presence and his word more than the reality of the circumstances they found themselves in. Does that make sense? Are you with me? They, they were seeing it correctly. We're not playing mind games. It really is painful. It really is difficult. It really is overwhelming. But God is greater. And that's what faith is all about. It's about trusting God's authority. Faith is not blind. We have this idea in our culture that faith is what you do when reason runs out. I meet Christians who believe this. Well, you just have faith. There's no reason to believe it, but you just have to have faith. That's not faith. Faith is certainty of what God has said and trusting in what God has said more than believing in the circumstances around me. I believe this is why God regularly requires the Israelites to remember what he's done because they come into situations where they desperately need to remember God's faithfulness in the past. We sang about it all morning. And we have to remember, retell, and respond to the reality of the gospel in those moments. That's faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Who exemplifies this in scripture? So many, but let's look at one, Abraham and Sarah. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Without becoming weak in faith, listen, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead 
since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He understood the situation. He wasn't turning a blind eye to reality. Without becoming weak in the faith, he contemplated the reality of his own body. Yet with respect to the promise of God, with respect to the promise, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what, was, what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham's not blind to situation. He's just trusting God more. And that's where faith intersects fruitlessness. When all around us we see thorns and thistles and there's a measure of fruitlessness in our life, we bring faith to that moment because of who God is and what he's told us. We will always be able to envision more than we can achieve. That's fruitlessness. Fruitlessness is that we will always be able to envision this side of heaven more than we can achieve. We need to expect it. We need to expect the valley, and when we're in the valley, we need to begin to see our story in the larger context, the larger story of the gospel, the larger story of what God is doing, and not the smaller story of just what I'm experiencing. You know, Christy and I began to fill in the blanks. In our infertility, we began to fill in the blanks with things like this. Maybe this is happening to us because of the way that we lived in high school. We each had this thought independent. Or maybe God doesn't think that we'd be good parents. Because if he thought we'd be good parents, he would give us children, right? I mean, children are a blessing from the Lord. Why would we not have children? He, maybe he doesn't think that we're good enough. Do you hear the story that I begin to, to write in my life that's completely contrary to the gospel? Where's grace in there? If Jesus died for my sins, why would I think I have to pay for them by being childless? That makes no sense. I have to see my pain in the larger context of the gospel. At this point, God had never, at this point, promised us children. But he had made promises to us as his children. Isaiah 43 one through five, I want to acknowledge I know that's written to Israel. But I think you will see as we read through this passage that it can also be applied to you as one who is in Christ. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you I have called you by name. You are mine. Like Israel, you and I belong to him. We were bought with a price. He knows us by name. Intimately and personally, he knows our pain. He knows our desires. He knows what we long for. He tells us in Romans 8, 15, that we have been adopted. We've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He loves us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you in the rivers and they will not overflow you. But that's not what it feels like. It feels like we're going to be undone. We're going to be overwhelmed. We're going to be swamped by the pain that we're experiencing. You will not be swamped. You will not be undone. He is there in the valley with you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. We, like Israel, have been redeemed by the gracious, unmerited work of God on our behalf through Jesus Christ, a man given in our place. He loves you. He's redeemed you. He says to you, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the kind of love he has for us. So do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. Don't be afraid in your loss. Work against fear. Bring the reality of God's promises and his goodness to bear. Remember, retell, and respond to the gospel. What's it like for you when things are out of your control, when things are going badly and there's something you so desperately want, but you just can't make it happen? Good things, good things that you desperately want, but they're just not happening. You've heard Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, right? That's important because religion is built around control. Religion is built around controlling God, earning favor with God. Religion is about determining what's best and doing whatever it takes so that I get what I want. I get what I need. That is not Christianity. That is superstitious idolatry. And I so quickly fall into superstitious idolatry. What do I need to do? I begin to write a new story instead of walking into the story that's already been written for me. Faith is demonstrated when I trust God's authority in every circumstance. When I pray and the answer is no, I trust God's authority. I trust his word and his promise to me. Christy and I had to surrender to the purpose and will of God in our life. And we had to believe in his promises and character. We had to stoke faith and it was a process and it was painful and we failed at it often. But we had to stoke faith and trust because we knew the truth but our hearts were trying to create something that was contrary to the gospel. And we needed to step into the gospel story and out of our little story. Is there something in your life that you're struggling with that is unknown or out of your control? You just can't make it right? Are you freaking out a little bit? Would Jesus look at you and say, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Can you look at the things that Jesus has done in your life already and extrapolate that, push that forward to your future and to say he has maintained, he has shown himself faithful and good and he will continue? Yes, that's faith. We've been given the gift of hope. You can't have hope without faith and you can't have faith without hope. They're really part and parcel, but there's a nuance. Faith is about trusting God's authority 
and his word, his promise in any given situation and circumstance. We apply faith and trust in his authority. Hope is about the future plan of God. It's about believing in his control and his sovereignty to bring something about. Hope is not wishful thinking. Oh, I hope, you know, I want to believe so that it happens. No, hope is founded on the character of God. Let me show you something. Hebrews 6, 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. Now, that may be a little confusing, but he's talking about Abraham and how God has a purpose that is unchangeable. His purpose is uh, what theologians call immutable. It's immutable. It doesn't change. His purpose, his sovereign will, will be done. And he did with Abraham. He, along with that, gave Abraham an oath when he made his covenant with Abraham and committed to bring about the redemption of all people on himself so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge in that truth would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. It finishes. He went into the veil. He made final payment for my sin. Hope is meant to be an anchor in the midst of turmoil and, and difficulty. When things are not turning out the way we want, when we look for things to be a certain way and we're not getting what we want and we're experiencing that meaninglessness, we have to remember that God's purpose is never undone. He will bring about his purpose. So why do we experience this floating, this sense of being unmoored from that anchor? I think one of the reasons is we compete with God for control in our lives. You know, Adam and Eve, they tried to find meaning apart from God. I said that in the beginning. They, they went to themselves and they thought they could find meaning apart from him. And we often do the same thing. We try to control our environment and what's going on and we begin to try to take control of things that we have absolutely no control over. You may have seen this before. I think it's life-changing and so I'm gonna show it to you again. If you've never seen it, here you go. If you have, bear with me. There are things that we cannot control. Now, this is not gonna be incredibly profound. We cannot control the past. Now, I say that and we go, yeah, of course, because it's past. But how many times do we fret and worry and we get trapped in thinking about the past, thinking about our past sins or thinking about past sins against us when we have absolutely no, no control over the past? It's gone. We can't control outcomes in the future. We have responsibility in this world, but we can't control the outcomes and we can't control others. Boy, we've tried. I've tried. You've tried. You're probably still trying. But you're finding that you can't actually control them. And we so desperately want to control the past, outcomes, and others. Do you realize the only person who can do this is an infinite God 
who is timeless, and he actually is omniscient and omnipotent. Do you see that? But we try. Every problem that I engage in a counseling room comes down to, I don't want to oversimplify, it takes time to get here, but comes down to this. Trying to be and do things that we were never given the charge or the power to do. And the one thing we are in control of is self, or called to be, our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. We're called to seek what should I do in any particular circumstance? How do I trust you? How should I think about that? And my feelings are slaves of my thinking. They are uh, slave to my thinking. I will feel consistently with how I think and to control my actions. You see, we end up in a place where we feel meaninglessness because we're actually competing for deity. But we have no ability to control any of those things on that left side. All we can do is control self by the power of the Spirit living in us, asking for his favor and his grace. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Placing my hope and confidence in anything other than God will always leave me ultimately empty and feeling meaningless. Why are you in despair? The diagnostic is because they're not hoping in God. We get it from the solution. Do you see that? Hope in God. And you will again praise him for the help of his presence in that moment, in that circumstance, which is painful. Even things that scripture affirms as good, like having children, cannot give us ultimate meaning. Hope is demonstrated when we surrender to God's control in every circumstance. Another way of saying this is we have to die to ourselves. It's not about me. It's about God's glory. And one of the things that is a reality for us is that we began to have these periods of meaninglessness and wondering what this all meant and where we were going. And we realized that we can't possibly have a life that's meaningless as a child of God because we've been given purpose. But it may be different than what we thought. And we may have to open ourselves up to God's bigger story and plan, but the purpose remains the same, to glorify God in every situation. What did Tony say a couple of weeks ago? That glorifying God means giving a right opinion of God. And in every valley, in every storm, we live a life that gives a right opinion of God. Was that not up there before? The gift of love. Faith overcomes fruitlessness. We trust God's authority when we experience fruitlessness. We are no longer undone by the reality of thorns and thistles. Hope overcomes meaninglessness. When, when life is chaos and things are not working the way we hoped, we don't look for meaning in creation. We look for meaning in God and in his plan. And when we have hope about his plan, we overcome the brokenness of meaninglessness. And the gift of love overcomes selfishness. When I am bent on something 
being fruitful where there's fruitlessness, and I'm not accepting the reality that there's just times where things are fruitless. When I am overwhelmed by meaninglessness and I'm seeking to find meaning, I redouble my efforts to find meaning in what I determined as good. I will invariably fold in on myself and I become very selfish. A good example that illustrates this is Esther. From the book of Esther, um, she was taken captive by King Xerxes. Uh, VeggieTales has destroyed that story. Um, But anyway, she was taken captive. She was taken from her family. She was put into the service of the king. I'm trying to be clear but vague, if you know what I mean. And basically, she was never to return to her family again. Once she had been with the king, whether he chose her or not, she was just part of his harem. So there was great loss in what happened to her. And in the midst of this, in, in creating a life in the palace, Haman decides that there's, there, he puts together a plot to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, finds out about it and says, Ah, oh, Esther, you've got to do something. You've got to go to the king. And she's like, No way. I'm not going to the king about this because the law states if anybody comes into the presence of the king without being bidden to come, they are put to death. It was, a, it was written in law, and it was something that I imagine they had seen. So she says no, and they related Esther's words. Well, where am I? They related Esther's words to Mordecai. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Do you see that? God's sovereign plan. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this, God's plan, a bigger story. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. And my maidens and I will do the same. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. You see, the reality is, she, we, if you know the story, she didn't perish. She didn't die. And actually, it didn't work out well for Haman. But at that moment... At that moment, she was ready to give her life for a reason, for the bigger story that God had in mind, that somehow the circumstances of her life had been brought about for the purpose of God, that she couldn't possibly have known in the midst of her pain and difficulty, but that she had faith and hope, and she responded in selfless love. If we fail to surrender control to God, we will become invariably, we will become enslaved to self. I wanted to give that to you. If we fail to surrender control to God, we will become enslaved to self. You see, Esther, in love, went against her fear. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And you know what else I think is true? Maybe you can think about your own life and see if this is true. I think fear casts out love. I think the two can't occupy the same space. And when we are fearful, we by definition are self-focused and we are unable to then function in agape, perfect love, the kind of love that is costly, the kind of love that's going to cost you. It's gonna cost you you. But the kind of love that's actually gonna free you, it's gonna free you from you. Selfless love can be demonstrated only when we surrender our dreams and desires and preferences because we trust God's presence in every circumstance. We can engage in selfless, agape kind of love, but we have to surrender our dreams, desires, and preferences to the bigger story of what God is doing. In 1 John 4, 12, we read uh, verses seven through 11 during worship. Dallas did. Says this, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we also ought to love one another. And then this thing happens that kind of has a left turn. No one has seen God at any time. Semicolon. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That last part is being connected to the idea that no one has ever seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How do we experience the loving care and presence of God? How do we come out of selfishness and give ourselves a selfishness, a selflessness? We love with abandon. We acknowledge that life is going to be filled with thorns and thistles and will be fruitless many times, that life will, be ne will never give us meaning that we so long for, that we have to find that alone in God and in his plan, and that our selfishness can only be undone by selfless love, and that when we do that, we experience God's presence in our lives. We're encouraged by his nearness. We are not forgotten. We are not left behind. He recognizes your pain and he's there. Faith is trusting God's authority and word. Hope is trusting God's sovereignty, his control, and his plan. And love is trusting God's presence and care. God was right there in the midst of our pain we had to surrender to his purposes and to his plan. And it was a process. It was a long process that in some ways we're still in. In a couple weeks, Ben, come on up. In a couple weeks, um, I'll be telling you the rest of the story. I'll be speaking again in two weeks and I'll be telling you the rest of the story. But right now, what I want us to do is there's a song that we sang at the very, right before I, I spoke. And when I heard this song, I thought, Matt, we have to do this song at the end because it reflects the heart of this message. I wrote the message, then heard the song, and I thought, we have to sing this again. And my encouragement to you is this, as you stand, will you stand? If you simply 
have to listen to the words and let them wash over you, then do that. Don't sing. Just focus on what the words are saying and make them connect to your experience in your life. What is it that's going on that you're out of control in? And if you can sing, if you can declare these, if you want this to be true, let it be a prayer from you. Let's sing together. Falling apart Piece by piece now Even in the grieving dark Hope gets me through I know when I've lost all control With all I have now I will praise you in the valley I will praise you in the storm
If you're in the midst of a storm or in the middle of a valley, we want to have an opportunity to pray for you if that would serve you. There's some folks over there across the um, street there that would love to pray with you. Really encourage you to stoke faith, hope, and love. They're gifts that are given to you to overcome the effects of the fall, to help you to step up into the, to the bigger story of the gospel and to not be trapped in your little story. Have a great Sunday.